and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, November 11th at 10 a.m. Happy Veterans Day. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. And Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. Later in this episode, we'll have my interview with Rebecca Love, a nurse leader who warns that it's not just a doctor shortage we're facing, but a potential nursing crisis as well. But first, this week's news. So Congress is out this week, and lawmakers are either closer to or further from a deal on that huge social spending bill than ever before. For those of you who spent last weekend doing, I don't know, weekend stuff, the House worked late, passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill that the president is going to sign early next week. And apparently the House worked a deal where moderates have agreed to vote for the social spending bill, assuming nothing surprising jumps out when the Congressional Budget Office finishes a full score on the bill. Do I have that right? And when do we expect to hear from the CBO? So they're not expected to have a full score in time, but they're releasing the pieces of the bill as they score them. And the moderates said that they got a little funny with the language. They said they need fiscal information, not necessarily an exact score. And so the CBO is, you know, working through this massive bill and cranking out their analyses as they go. We have not gotten the scores of the new drug pricing language yet. I know we're all waiting for that. It is expected that the House is going to pass this next week. The real question is then what the Senate's going to do and when. Yes, I did notice that the CBO sent out yesterday their their score of the Homeland Security piece of the bill. And I'm like, oh, they're just going to send this out in pieces. So just to recap on the health parts where we ended up after this long negotiation, there's still an extension of subsidies for the Affordable Care Act, new eligibility for those caught in the Medicaid gap in states that didn't expand under the ACA, some modest but still far-reaching changes to prescription drug prices, four weeks of paid family leave, and hearing aid coverage, but not dental or eye care for Medicare. Is that it? Am I missing something? Home care, right? Yeah, but a lot less than than they originally wanted, even a lot less than the House originally put in the bill. It it got cut back even further. Okay, so now let's talk about what happens. The the deal, as it's been explained, is that the moderates will go ahead and vote for this and it'll get out of the House in this current form next week. But it will not stay in this current form when it gets to the Senate for a variety of reasons, right? That's right. There are lots of moving parts to this, Julie. So you mentioned the paid family leave. We also are probably going to see negotiations on climate change and taxes, including an e-cigarette tax. But the thing that we're all watching very closely is the drug prices, which you mentioned. Obviously, this has been a long time coming. I remember when this passed in 2003, I remember the House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Bill Thomas at the time talking to us about how the private plans were going to be able to negotiate so well and there'll be so much competition that We wouldn't need Medicare as a whole to come in and leverage all its clout. But we've seen Democrats call for this for years. I also remember at one point standing backstage with Tommy Thompson, who was the HHS secretary. I was going to moderate a panel and he was talking about how he had wished that he had the power to negotiate drug prices. And this was back in 2005. So there's been a lot of talk about this for years and um, we will see what happens. I expect there to be 
lots of horse trading and discussion in the Senate. We're watching the moderates, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, and Bob Menendez from New Jersey and others. This has been scaled back quite a bit from what originally was talked about, but it still is a pretty interesting change. Now, even assuming that we get the moderates to sign on to this because they need all of the Democrats in order for this to pass, there's still that birdbath thing that has to happen, right? Absolutely, yes. There are lots of rules with the birdbath. So you can't have things that are extraneous. There are, there are particular rules about the spending within a 10-year window. There are lots of things that it has to survive in order to be able to go through this process known as reconciliation, where you only need a majority instead of 60 votes to pass. You should memorize the name Elizabeth McDonough, who is the Senate parliamentarian and gets to make a lot of very consequential decisions in the next couple of weeks. But the chances of this whole thing getting done before Thanksgiving seem pretty small, right? Well, uh, my colleague Mary Ellen McIntyre talked to Tom Carper the other day and he said, oh, maybe it'll be a Thanksgiving miracle, but it would have to be a miracle. I, I don't see it. I think there are so many things that have to be done with this, so many things need to be worked out. I think December is going to be a pretty interesting time for Congress, given that we have to deal with the debt ceiling, appropriations, all sorts of things. And we'll see what happens with this. It's already taken longer than you would think it would have. They gave themselves until December 3rd on both the debt ceiling and the continuing resolution for the appropriations, the the actual spending bills. We talk about this as the social spending bill, Um, but the actual annual spending bills, and they're going to run right into that deadline. And it's going to get pretty ugly pretty fast right after Thanksgiving, right? Absolutely. Alice, do do they have any idea how they're going to solve any of these things? Um, So the latest is that they actually want to try to knock out some things that they think might be easier before taking this up, like the NDAA, um, the National Defense Authorization Act, just to get that out of the way. (laughs) I have never heard the defense authorization referred to as something that's easier. (laughs) I know that that really tells you how much they're struggling with the social spending bill. But it's also important to remember that birdbath doesn't happen in a day. This is something where, you know, Republicans are going to try to challenge as many pieces of the bill as they can and make arguments before the parliamentarian that they don't work under the reconciliation rules and Democrats are going to have to try to mount defenses. We've already seen this happen in the immigration space and raising the minimum wage. It's going to happen in healthcare too. We don't know what the outcome will be. We don't know what kind of backup plans Democrats will try to cobble together. So all of that could really drag out the calendar as well. This is not done by a long shot. All right, well, let us move on to COVID. Apparently, we can't go even a week without talking about a court case in Texas. The breaking news is that uh, a federal district court has blocked the Texas governor from stopping mask mandates. There's so many negatives in this story. Texas can no longer block local school mask mandates because it's a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But this is just sort of the first stage in what's likely to continue on through the courts, right? Yeah, certainly, like Texas has said that they will appeal this, and but it's a tactic that's being taken in several states that have bans on mask mandates, whether it was the governor that put it in place or the legislature. And disabilities rights groups are suing because children with disabilities are, in many cases, the most at risk for a severe consequence from COVID. So essentially, if you say you can't have a mask mandate, you're keeping them out of school. Yeah. 
So that this, this will definitely go on. And we've also seen lawsuits now filed against the Biden administration's vaccine mandate. And the Biden administration, that, that's also going to sort of wend its way through the courts here. I mean, are, are we getting any closer on these vaccine mandates? I mean, they on the one hand, they seem to be working. On the other hand, there seems to be an awful lot of pushback. It's just sort of another piece of now the culture wars, right? I think that um, the filing of lawsuits and the idea of a widespread backlash aren't necessarily the same thing. I think we've seen mandates successfully get the vast, vast majority of people vaccinated, upwards of 90 percent, and these large companies and large uh, government departments that have implemented them. Yes, there are lawsuits. There are groups that, you know, go around seeking out plaintiffs and convincing them to be a part of these lawsuits for ideological reasons. That's always going to happen, but I don't think that's necessarily indicative of a broader society backlash. Although we do see the broader society backlash in things. I mean, David Leonhardt in the New York Times had a really interesting update in his continuing series about how since the vaccines came out, COVID is hitting red states and counties a lot harder than blue states. We know from surveys that people who self-identify as Republicans are less likely to be vaccinated than people who identify as Democrats. Does this fade when COVID goes away or is this going to be sort of a permanent part of the the culture wars? I'm really interested to see that outcome because it feels in a lot of instances like it has pushed the culture wars. You know, if you are a conservative who is against mask mandates or vaccine mandates, you're angry and it doesn't, I don't think it by any means extend just to those things. I think it's going beyond and that kind of similarly with liberals who are angry at conservatives who they feel are making the pandemic last longer. Um, so I think the question you asked is one that a lot of people are wondering, like, can can we bring civility back? Can there be some sort of middle ground? I'm not too optimistic, but, you know, I think that it depends on so many things. This was sort of my takeaway from the midterm elections, that everybody is some combination of anxious and cranky. And it's just not a great combination. And I just I don't know when it goes away. I mean, things are not quite normal enough yet. We're already seeing some of this partisan anger bleed over into other realms of health. And we're seeing, you know, people who start arguing that there shouldn't be COVID vaccine mandates. They're now arguing that there shouldn't be any vaccine mandates whatsoever. So kids should be able to go to public schools and spread measles, for example, or all kinds of other things. And we've seen a lot of conservative state governments rolling back the power of public health to be able to, you know, swoop in and deal with outbreaks when they happen in different kinds of things, you know, close down restaurants that that have food outbreaks. So we are seeing the backlash against COVID public health measures turn into a backlash against all public health measures in some places, at least. In my mind, it raises questions about where we're going from here. Obviously, this piece in the upshot really demonstrated the divide and how it has health consequences for people who are living in these areas where people are reluctant to get the vaccine or reluctant to wear a mask or anything else. Um, For people in those areas, it's about liberty and freedom. I think public health experts would say, you know, you also need to allow other people to have the freedom to live so and not spread COVID. Um, So I think it is an open question about what we're going to see in the months ahead. I think, you know, we're still at 70,000 cases a day of COVID. 
parts of Europe are seeing increases. You know, obviously people are saying that we're not going to see quite as much death and hospitalization as we did last year because we have these vaccines, but really we should not be at the point that we're at now. We should be at a better place than we are now. I wanted to point out that it's not just the United States. In China last week, they locked 30,000 people inside a Disney theme park in Shanghai. After one person tested positive, they wouldn't let them out until they tested all 30,000 people. In Singapore, you're free not to get vaccinated. But if you don't and you get COVID, their health system won't pay for your care. Um, We're not about to go that far, right? (laughs) Uh, Well, we've seen calls for that, but I think, you know, people have rightfully pushed back and said that that sort of rationing healthcare, I mean, we already have rationing of healthcare just based on scarcity of resources, but doctors deciding who to care for based on their opinions of their own personal behavior is not a road we want to go down. And, and not a road we have gone down yet. But all right. Well, I want to talk about opioids because we haven't done that in a couple of weeks. This week, the Oklahoma Supreme Court threw out a conviction against Johnson & Johnson for violating the state's, quote, public nuisance law by flooding the state with painkillers. It's the second time this month that uh, a case has been found in the drug maker's favor. A judge in California similarly ruled that there was no direct evidence that drug makers are responsible for the misuse of opioids. Although if you've watched or read any of the documentaries or books on the subject in the past couple of years, you'll see there's quite a bit of evidence. But pardon the editorial comment. Are drug makers ultimately going to get off here? Because unlike tobacco makers, we actually need the products that drug makers make. I recently read one of those excellent books. I read Empire of Pain and the author did an interview recently and he was talking about how he had to finish the book and file it before some of these legal cases finished in the courts and the outcome was known. But he said, you know, something that really stuck with me. It was very depressing. It's like he he knew he knew how it was going to end. He knew they were going to basically get away with it. And even if there were some sort of penalty, like it wouldn't really reach the people who made the decisions. And that cynicism seems to be bearing out right now in very grim ways. And it's just grim that it's happening at a time when overdoses are just worse than ever. They got so much worse during the pandemic. The harm is so evident all around us, and yet we can't seem to hold anyone accountable for it. And I think we're going to see a lot more of these lawsuits, but there'll be these big verdicts and then they'll get reversed on appeal and then people will forget about it because this is one of these sort of huge problems that's been a little bit dwarfed by even huger problems. So it's a little later than usual, but my colleagues over the firewall at KFF put out their annual employer health insurance survey this week. There were some interesting tidbits, mostly that the average individual health premium is now over $7,700 a year. The average family premium is over $22,000 a year. That really is a small car. That's up 22% over the last five years and 47% over the last 10, even though the last couple of years have been relatively flat. Um, Deductibles are also up. Uh, In 2021, nearly three in 10 people with employer coverage had deductibles of $2,000 or more. That's up from only 7% as recently as 2000. It appears that COVID didn't actually add much to health spending, or more likely it did, but that was offset by declines in healthcare usage as people avoided medical situations where they might catch COVID. But even with things relatively flat, are we like the proverbial frog in the pot of water here, not noticing that we're boiling because it's getting hotter so gradually? Well, one thing I noticed was just the long-term trends um, that family premiums were up 284%. From 99 to 
2021 and wages were only up 90% during that time. And so, you know, we're not seeing the huge increases that we saw back, you know, at the beginning of when you all started this, but we are still seeing these increases that are higher than inflation. It continues to be an issue. High deductible plans have continued to rise during this time. And I think the strain on consumers is a real issue. And I think that's why Democrats in Congress are so interested in doing something about these things to shield consumers from the prices, even if it's just the Obamacare plans or um, dealing with people in the Medicaid coverage gap and, and dealing with prescription drugs. I think the political interest among people of both parties, voters in both parties, to do something about health care costs is palpable and, and a real concern. And of course, one of the big reasons that wages haven't gone up is because employers are paying so much more for health insurance. That's money that would have gone into raises. Right. And and unions say this all the time. And unions are very active in lobbying Congress right now around different pieces of the bill that have to do with their health care, because we've reported that they, they see it at the bargaining table all the time. And the cost of health care is one of the biggest factors affecting their members. And it's just interesting that, yes, there is such high interest uh, among lawmakers for tackling this. But I think, you know, one of the biggest criticisms of the Affordable Care Act is that it did so much for coverage, but didn't really take on costs in a real way. But we're sort of seeing that pattern repeat again, because it's just way harder and it's way politically harder to go after cost than to just subsidize coverage for everyone. (laughs) I think this latest fight over drug prices is a really good example of why the Affordable Care Act didn't go more strongly after cost because the health industry is really, really powerful and it can stop stuff by just picking off a few votes, which is so far at least what has happened, right? Absolutely. Just, you know, because you have, because the chambers have such small margins, Democrats really don't have a whole lot of room to maneuver. And so, you know, what Democrats are talking about now, you know, Alice makes a good point. It's easier to shield consumers in the health exchange plans from the cost than to really lower the cost. Same is true in the prescription drug space, because, you know, we do have these things related to capping inflation starting in 2023 and capping insulin. But the thing that consumers, I think, are really going to feel before the presidential election is that catastrophic cap of $2,000 in out-of-pocket cost per year that's going to take effect. And that's going to really prevent seniors from feeling the high prices of drugs. So, you know, it's so much easier to do that than to do other things. Now, we do have the drug price negotiations um, starting in 2025 as part of this reconciliation package. And that's starts with the 10 drugs and, and insulin. But that scaled back so much from what they originally had talked about. So I think it's very difficult to lower drug prices or to lower healthcare costs. It's it's hard to do that. Well, I think the the bottom line is that you can lower costs or you can change who pays. And that's, I think, the way it's been easier over the years for the government to just say, okay, we'll pay for it, than for the government to say to providers, you'll take less. Mm -hmm. So basically, they're putting the costs on the taxpayers rather than on the healthcare industry. Yes. Because when they try to put the cost on the healthcare industry, the healthcare industry fights back. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, something else that was interesting in the KFF employer survey feeds into something I've been trying to bring up for a couple of weeks now, the future of telehealth. Apparently, employers figured out that they needed to expand telehealth access, both in terms of the types of care covered and where it can be covered. For a while, under Medicare, you had to actually go someplace for telehealth services. You couldn't do it from home. Um, In the survey now, 95% of employers offered some kind of telehealth services, up from 85% the year before. But I'm curious as to what happens to telehealth when the public health emergency ends? Will eligibility be cut back? Is this a genie we can't put back in the bottle because both providers and patients have gotten used to it? And will it really reduce more expensive care or will it be like urgent care where it just multiplied how much care is given? I mean, I'm seeing some studies that say, oh yeah, telehealth is saving money because we're catching stuff early and people don't need to go to the emergency room. But that's not what always happens when you sort of add a mode, you just get more of it, right? And I think also the data could be skewed by who is able to use telehealth, who has access to it. And so I think that, you know, these are going to be, you know, wealthier people in areas that have good Internet. And I think that could also skew, you know, based on their health usage behaviors, you know, not being representative of the general population, too. So I I would just want to see more data before being able to understand what's going on. Yeah, I just I keep seeing telehealth being, you know, cast as this. This is a great thing. And it is. I mean, for people who, who have difficulty, you know, getting to places to get to particularly specialists, it can be a great thing. But I've seen this happen enough times that when you sort of expand something like this uh, usage and if there's money attached to it, usage will grow to fill in the gap. I think it's hard to take it away. And I've heard lawmakers in both parties say that they would like to make some of these telehealth changes permanent after the public health emergency. I think they're talking about that. We'll see. The cost is a big question. And, you know, CMS already did make some changes. They just changed the telehealth for mental health in the physician fee schedule on November 2nd. So they, you know, they relaxed a lot of those rules. So you're already seeing the administration try to do what it can. I think that there are people in Congress who want to do something to expand it. And if you have seniors who are able to use FaceTime or able to, you know, do a Zoom call or something, if they can do it, other people certainly can do it. And um, I think it's hard to go back and take that away from people if they want it. And I think you mentioned mental health, which is extremely important. Like if you're taking away a stigma in a way, like people may be afraid to get services and different things. Um, You know, it's not just your typical like, hey, doc, like what's this thing on my arm? Like it, it can extend to a lot of other places where even if there's a boom in use, it's a necessary boom in use, um, not something that's extra. There's such a shortage of mental health providers. I mean, one would think that this could only actually be helpful for that. That seems to be the one place where it's kind of unquestionably needed and that loosening some of these requirements has been a good thing. We'll talk about mental health completely at at, at some future point. All right. Well, that is as much time as we have for the news this week. Now we will play my interview with Rebecca Love. She's a nurse, an academic, an entrepreneur, and she's thought a lot about the future of the nursing profession and where it fits into our healthcare system. So here's the interview, and then we will come back with our extra credits. (music) 
We are pleased to welcome to the podcast Rebecca Love. She's the Chief Clinical Officer of IntelliCare, a nurse staffing platform, and she's the first nurse to be featured on TED.com, where you can watch her talk. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. Julie, thank you so much for having me. I confess, as someone whose hobby is thinking about the nation's healthcare workforce, nurses are rarely top of mind, yet nurses are a large and irreplaceable part of the healthcare delivery system here in the U.S., Still, they are not seen as leaders generally. Why is that? You know, uh, Julie, I think that substantially, nurses have always been seen as a commodity, an endless resource that regardless if there was healthcare and any kind of conversations, they were going to be that source that was always going to be at the base of the healthcare platform, delivering care and being there through thick and thin. And I think that that has just been the foundation of which healthcare has been built. So nurses, uh, because they are so integral, and, and, and in fact, actually, I think it ties into some the payer model, that nurses are rolled into room rates, they cannot bill separately for any of the, the services that they perform, that they are often left out of the conversations with healthcare leadership because they are a line item to the cost side of business structures as opposed to a value add into healthcare from a financial model. And that to me is probably the biggest driver why you see nurses not often in positions of healthcare leadership, because when you speak to them as part of a workforce issue, they're simply seen as a 24-7, you know, seven days a week necessity within healthcare, as opposed to an instrumental factor in terms of driving outcomes and healthcare innovation and the future of our entire nation from a health standpoint. And yet they are the ones at the bedside closest to be able to see what works and what doesn't. You've run a program on nurse innovation. What is nurse innovation? So I think um, you're, you're going to hear this from nurses around the country that we constantly MacGyver by the bedside. So studies show that nurses by the bedside are often dealing with technologies that were not designed to help them actually do their job. So they're doing workarounds on regular shifts. So on average, nurses are doing 27 workarounds per day on a hospital shift because the devices that they're working with were not designed to actually help them in their job or actually improve patient outcomes. Can you give me just an example of that? Absolutely. So in this situation, I I can speak back to a long time ago, I was in a situation where a new voice recorder came out that was supposed to be a communication platform that when we were told, hey, you know what, use this, it's going to create less work for you. And we, I was in a situation that when they rolled it out onto the floor at that time, it had no ability to be dimmed or to turn down. So we'd be sitting in a patient room, it would be like, Dr. So-and-so is on the call, you need to get a glass of water to this patient's room, you need to make sure that this order is done. And it's yelling at you constantly as you're sitting there trying to deliver care. And by the end of that shift, all of us as nurses had taken it and put it at the front desk, right? Um, now, the other example are EHRs, right? We're dealing with EHRs that are supposed to help us track and do better outcomes. We're finding that we're actually spending three hours a day in the charting system, detracting us from healthcare and performing to what we're supposed to do, take care of patients' lives. It's just become data entry, right? It's data entry and everything they say, hey, this is going to create less work for you as a nurse, often creates more work for us as nurses. And we're constantly innovating in highly inefficient healthcare environments because, again, we are not involved in those decisions on which products, projects, or processes are rolled out onto our floor. And we are often the end user of nearly every one of those situations. Everybody leaves us out of those conversations further driving burnout, inefficiencies. And if you just simply brought nurses to the table earlier into the process, think of all the money, efficiency, time, and resources you would have saved if they simply hadn't been involved earlier in those conversations. So this, as we know, has been a really tough year and a half for everyone in healthcare, but nurses in particular, how serious is the burnout problem right now? 
Well, you know, um, and the, the numbers are coming out, but we know that the largest exodus of nursing happened between the year 2020 and 21. We are predicting another 500,000 nurses to leave by the end of 2022, and most 900,000 nurses to leave in the next five years. This is the most significant exodus we have ever seen in the history of nursing and most critical moment of time for the United States healthcare system because nurses are the basics of the foundation of healthcare. They sit at the bottom, they are the largest healthcare workforce. If they crack, if they crumble, healthcare will follow. Because the reason you're in hospitals, the reason you are in nursing homes is not because you need to see a doctor or have OT or PT. The reason that you are there is because you need nursing care to keep you alive. Otherwise, OT, surgery, everything could be done in outpatient centers. The reason you are in hospitals and nursing homes is because your life is deemed so unstable that if you don't have a nurse monitoring it, you are at risk of dying. And that is what I think we are fundamentally missing in the conversation today. And all of these conversations around value-based care and the new models that are coming out are actually decreasing the impact and reimbursable models for nurses, not increasing them, which we had hoped. And because of this, nurses are going to just burn out because nobody is recognizing the value our profession adds. And we keep getting asked to do more with less. So one of the problems we've heard about, particularly during the pandemic, is travel nurses getting paid more than staff nurses who actually stick with their employers, which just encourages more nurses to up and become travel nurses, drives up costs for the entire system, hurts continuity of care. Is there some way to address this problem? You know, I think that fundamentally there is a real lack of coordination between health systems looking towards their nursing workforce as an investable resource. Um, And so travel nursing uh, in line with those who've been by the bedside is creating incredible animosity in our systems. And one that is very poorly understand when you talk to a bedside nurse, why is this nurse next to me making $150 an hour when I've been with you at eight and a half years as an IC nurse and I'm making $32 an hour? And the answer is it comes from a different budget line. Fundamentally, that is a flawed discussion. It's also a value that the truth is, is that nursing for a long time has not been part of free market enterprise because they're rolled into roommates. There's a lot of regulation that actually goes back that says how much people can pay nurses, which I don't think we're aware of as a profession, that actually there's a lot of state guidelines that say, hey, this is the maximum amount you can pay to nurses. And why many nurses, when they hit 20 years in their career, they're told, sorry, there's never going to be another raise you see because you've hit the top of that pipeline. Fundamentally, that metric is broken. When you have a demand for a resource, the truth is, is you must allow market dynamics to happen. And there has to be a fundamental alignment within our healthcare systems who on average, the increase of nursing salaries only increases is 1.5%, less than half the cost of living over a 20 year career for a nurse. I mean, these dynamics are something we must address and it's really coming down to payer issues bound based on Medicare, Medicaid to payer reimbursement models that fundamentally are gonna need to happen within healthcare systems to address these issues because it is going to be a breaking point. And the truth is, is I'm not sure why anyone would stay in conditions where they could make the same amount of money. I mean, I mean, three times the amount of money doing the same job within the same location. So I've been hearing for years that the root cause of the nursing shortage isn't that there aren't enough people who want to become nurses, but because there aren't enough teachers to teach them to become nurses. Is there something we can do to repopulate that that pipeline of nursing instructors? It's not a quick answer, unfortunately. There's neither the number of seats in nursing schools, nor is the programs can actually speed up and deliver nursing 
resources in any sort of time frame within the next two to five years. Fundamentally, I do believe that what you saw in the 1980s and 1990s was a decreased funding into nursing education that a lot of nursing schools actually shut their doors, they closed their nursing programs. If you look at the top 50 colleges in the United States or universities, many of them no longer have nursing schools. The truth is nursing programs are very expensive to run. They're three times as expensive as a program in business because you need simulation, you need clinical, you need all of these issues that exist. And really it is going to take us as a nation federally funded to start reinvesting in nursing school and education and also more clinical pathways to say, hey, if you're a CNA, here's how you become an LPN. And if you look across the history in the last 20 years, LPN programs have virtually disappeared in the United States because we saw it as a less skilled workforce. But the truth is we need to be reimagining what nursing education looks like, new clinical pathways. If you're a CNA, here's how you become a nurse. Here's how you become a, a master's prepared nurse. And we start looking at that as a cost benefit to our healthcare systems as opposed to a detraction. In the U.S. healthcare system, we tend to sort of do things only when we reach a crisis point. Are we at the crisis point with nursing? We're beyond the crisis point, unfortunately. The crisis has been well been sounded. We're at the point that we are going to experience significant pain within our hospital systems and nursing homes for the next two to five years. People are now going to die because they are not getting access to care. And I wish to tell you, I just left a nursing conference where nurses were reporting to us that, you know, they have patients showing up into the ER and by the time they get to them, they're dead in their chairs because we don't have enough nurses to keep those hospital rooms open and the beds open, um, not only in hospitals, but in nursing homes. And when nursing homes can't staff, that means bed throughput stops, which backs up the entire hospital system. And unfortunately we are at that crisis point. The only thing we can do, Julie, in my opinion, and to your point, the only thing we can do is there may be enough nurses to work in the United States, but they are not willing to work in the environments in which healthcare exists today. So we know of the 4 million RN licenses that exist in the United States, there are 570,000 active RN licenses who are not practicing by the bedside. And the truth is, is we know that with another 500,000 nurses retiring by 2022, this 1.1 million nursing shortage that was supposed to hit in 2030 is now going to accelerate and really start hitting us between 2022 and 2025. So fundamentally, if we're going to do something differently, we have to reimagine how nurses work, provide them with a work-life balance, more flexibility, access to shifts that they want, because that is the only way they're going to re-engage with us. They're no longer going to allow the system to dictate to them what their work-life balance is going to look like and their opportunities to exist by the bedside. Rebecca Love, we will definitely come back to this subject because I think it's underreported and really important. Thank you so much for joining us. Julie, it was a pleasure. And thank you for reporting on it because it is an issue that is going to bring down health care if we don't address it. Okay, we are back and it's time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Rebecca, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So I did a KHN story. Patients went into the hospital for care after testing positive there for COVID. Some never came out by Christina Jewett. So this was a really heartbreaking story about people who went into the hospital for other conditions and acquired COVID while they were there. And of course, acquired hospital-acquired infections have been a problem for other conditions for a long time. But for COVID, this is often a a deadly issue, certainly before vaccination. And she found that um, about 21% of the patients who contracted COVID in the hospital from April to September last year died. 
compared to 8% of other Medicare patients who died in the hospital. So that's quite a contrast. And, you know, over the past year, you've seen anecdotes about that. You've seen people writing editorials about that. But she did a good job of going through and looking at some of the studies, telling some of those anecdotes. Um, she talked about Brigham and Women's Hospital and how they had touted how few of patients in their hospital got COVID. It was only about 0.3% of patients. Well, right after that, there was a big outbreak. So it's another tale about the toll of the pandemic. Alice. So I picked a story from NPR. It's called, Despite Calls to Improve, Air Travel is Still a Nightmare for Many with Disabilities. And it's just a very depressing uh, piece about how difficult it is for people with just a range of different disabilities and uh, medical conditions have when going through security at airports. You know, we're going into a time of year where the people are going to be traveling a lot for the holidays and the, the treatment they undergo is just terrible. <laughs> um, there are some programs to, um, to help them navigate, but they're just inadequately staffed. And so you have people who have autism, who are, you know, very unable to deal with, you know, being shouted at by officials and, you know, bright lights and, and sounds and all of that. You have people who have medical equipment or medication that has to be kept at a certain temperature that's been messed with by security agents. And so I hope that this really shines a light on the problem and leads to some reforms. And a shout out to my former NPR colleague, Joe Shapiro, who covered the Americans with Disability Act passage with me 30 some years ago and has stayed on this beat ever since. Anna. Um, I chose a story by a colleague of mine, Kristen Brown at Bloomberg. Um, all those 23andMe spit tests were part of a bigger plan. And um, she took this really interesting look and deep into 23andMe and you know, lots of people sending in their their DNA samples. And 23andMe wants to become a drug maker by using those DNA samples. I thought it was just so interesting to think about. A lot of people probably mindlessly clicked the box, like, sure, use my data, you know, whatever. And now, like, they could be paying for drugs that were created using their data. It's an interesting situation. It's also a profile of the company. It's fascinating to see. This has been the plan all along, um, and it's actually been stuck with. And, you know, that's that can be unusual sometimes. And so I think it's a good future of healthcare and data story. It actually reminded me of the story about the cell lines that have been, you know, yeah, people had their yeah. cells taken and then, you know, they were used going going forward um it's a really good point the next generation (laughs) exactly it's the next (laughs) generation of the cell lines well my my story this week is kind of companion to the rebecca love interview it's about the crisis in primary care it's by meryl guzner in the washington monthly and it's called the doctor will not see you now the subhead is that primary care is a disaster consolidation is making it worse and a revolution is coming there are some really strong suggestions about fixing primary care that could be one really good way to squeeze some of the excess cost out of the healthcare system that we've just spent the last half an hour talking about if only we could actually do some of these things but it is well worth a read so that is our show for this week as always if you enjoy the podcast you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we'd appreciate it if you left us a review that helps other people find us too Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Anna? At Anna Edney. Rebecca? At Rebecca Adams, DC. 
Alice. At Alice Holstein. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.